This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Considerations pertaining to a new Alzheimer's drug, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Erica Grotto. Today we have a special featured interview by HFMA Senior Editor Nick Hutt. He's talking with Dr. Ronald Hirsch of R1RCM about a new treatment for Alzheimer's disease. But first, Nick is here with HFMA Policy Director Sean Stack to discuss what's happening in healthcare finance news. Outdoors it, everybody. We wanted to provide some analysis of Medicare's proposed rule for outpatient payments in 2024. There are a couple of big issues to discuss that pertain to hospitals, including a major update to hospital price transparency regulations. But first of all, the payment update itself is proposed to be 2.8%, not likely to have hospital administrators dancing in the streets. It's not enough to keep up with costs in the inflationary environment that most of the healthcare industry continues to find itself in. That said, it's not unexpected. Sean, what were your thoughts when you saw this proposed rule? I mean, I agree, Nick. I think the 2.8% is not something that we were surprised at seeing the proposal for the 2.8, but I think there'll be heavy pushback, clearly because the 2.8% does not keep up with inflation. This the cost of supplies, the excessive cost of drug increases across the board for providers and hospitals. Um, but I think, you know, we'll see most associations and hospitals push back on the 2.8%. So hopefully we'll be able to eke a little bit more out of CMS from that increase in the final rule. There are tweaks in the recalibration of ambulatory payment classifications, along with budget neutrality adjustments in the wage index that CMS says would bump the actual net update back up to 3%. So that's kind of like canceling out the mandatory 0.2% reduction that's factored in every year as a productivity adjustment, every year at least since the Affordable Care Act. We talked about this briefly with the inpatient payment rule a few months ago, but different categories of hospitals would be impacted differently, in large part due to the permutations of the wage index. Rural hospitals as a group, for example, would have a payment update in the 4.4% range, so that's somewhat better. Hospitals in the Middle Atlantic and Pacific regions would do quite a bit better than those in some other regions. So it's worth doing a deep dive into the rule and seeing exactly how your hospital is projected to come out in all this. Yeah, and that's something that we'll be diving into really closely with our executive council, the government reimbursement executive council that I chair, along with four of us, we'll be looking at those impacts specific to hospitals and we'll be getting feedback from members on you know, how rurals are faring as opposed to academic medical centers and urban hospitals and critical access hospitals. So yes, definitely something to consider and work with your, your analyst on what those direct impacts are based on the schedules that are out there. Um, something to really look at and really provide feedback, hospital-specific feedback and comments on the rule, because not all association comments reflect exactly what you're experiencing at your hospital. 
So yeah, great neck. Great. Yes, sound advice there. Absolutely. So CMS did include a big hospital price transparency update in the OPPS regulations. OPPS, of course, is the outpatient prospective payment system. It's really the biggest set of changes since the rules were adopted at the beginning of 2021. So if you would, Sean, give everyone some of the highlights. There are new general elements required um, to be included in hospital MRFs, things like hospital name. So there's solid confirmation that all hospitals within a healthcare system have their own specific MRF that's dedicated solely to the individual hospitals. The hospital name needs to be on there, licensure number, file version, the date the MRF was last updated because the minimum requirement there is annually, additional charge detail requirements, code types, drug and modifier details, separate plan names, contracting methods need to be on there now, new data validation rules. And this is very important for those analysts out there reviewing these files and looking for trends and opportunities. Um, new data validation rules include expected allowed fields for the consumer-friendly dollar amount, now required for a formularic rate, and then standard values, defining inpatient, outpatient, MSDRG. The agency is mandating that those specific values for several fields are stated, saying what that rate is. And then CMS states that they plan to enforce the standard hospital MRF format as early as March 1st of 2024. I can tell you that HFMA, myself, will be requesting and encouraging our partners and members to request an extension on that timeline to adopt the standard format that they choose. Given that many hospitals have already contracted and completed their MRF file updates for 2024, because they have to be updated every year. So given that MRFs are only required to be updated annually, we would ask for that to be pushed out one year so folks aren't having to contract again to have the same file redone. And that's just an additional administrative cost that adds into healthcare. The rule also enables CMS to publicize their assessment of hospital noncompliance. Any of those actions taken against the hospitals, the outcome, and then CMS would also publish any notifications sent to senior leadership for public review. So really tying in enforcement with senior leadership at health systems. Um, making that more visible for the public to see what that dialogue has been between CMS and a quote-unquote non-compliant hospital. And then lastly, the rule seeks comment on how the agency can improve the alignment of hospital price transparency regulations with other healthcare price transparency requirements like those required for health plans to publish pricing information, which really until recently has kind of been an afterthought, in my opinion, from CMS oversight. Lots up in the air here on this proposed rule. Um, I like, for the most part, where they're going with the standardization of the formats. Um, I think it'll make it easier for hospitals to comply now that they have this more granular detail and advisement because there were just too many gray areas before. But the devil's in the details, right? So we'll see what comes out in the final rule. Yeah, well, thanks for the rundown. I, I probably don't have to add anything to that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of geeked out on you there, Nick. <laughs> no, it's it's good stuff. If I were going to amplify a couple of things, I guess I think the incentive at CMS was to make the machine-readable files more usable, especially by these vendors that have the capacity to take all this data and, and convert it into consumer-friendly information on how much it will cost you to get a specific service at a specific hospital. Uh, some of those companies have been running into barriers in utilizing that information 
as intended because of the issues that you alluded to with formatting and inconsistencies in the presentation. And then the enforcement part, like you said, I mean, right now there's a CMS webpage that just lists four hospitals that have incurred penalties in the two and a half years since the rules went into effect. If this change goes through, that publicly accessible list of enforcement actions is going to get a lot longer because you'd be able to see hospitals that even just got an initial warning notice about noncompliance, um, as well as a request for a corrective action plan. Yep, that's correct. But of course, you know, again, no payers on that list, right? No payers on any list from CMS. So I do encourage CMS to ramp up their oversight on the MRFs, the MRFs for payers, um, because they too hold a hand in price transparency. I agree. I think we set our piece. Uh, Sean, thanks as always for the knowledge. And we'll talk to everybody again soon. Yep. Thank you, Nick. Hi, this is Nick Hutt. The new drug, Lakembi, certainly sounds as though it has the potential to help patients who are in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease. But in terms of Medicare coverage of the drug, there's a point or two that hospitals may be overlooking. For perspective on these issues, I'm speaking with Dr. Ronald Hirsch. He is vice president of the Regulations and Education Group at R1RCM. Dr. Hirsch, thank you for joining the podcast. Before we get to the key points that you've highlighted in correspondence between the two of us, I wanted to ask about the general terms of coverage. Lakembi is priced at $26,500 for a year's worth of treatment. And CMS has said Medicare will provide coverage of the drug after it received full approval by the FDA on July 6th. However, the provider must be participating in an approved registry in order for Medicare coverage to apply. What do you think about that in terms of, are there any sticking points, especially with the registry aspect of the policy? I think it's a really good idea that CMS did this. With a drug like this, where the efficacy is not overwhelming, I think it's important for data to continue to be obtained to see whether the drug truly is effective in Medicare beneficiaries. It appears that Medicare has set up their own registry, and it seems to be a pretty simple tool. So it's not a lot of work. It will take some work by the physician or their staff to enter that information. I will mention a lot of the listeners are going to be hospital people, that one of the things is the hospital where the infusions often will be taking place, they're going to be responsible to make sure that the physician who may be a private practitioner is actually submitting that information to the registry. One of those sticking points that we have to make sure with an expensive drug like this, if the physician forgets to input the information, the claim goes in for the drug and it gets rejected because there isn't a corresponding visit in the registry, that's money that can't be collected. Certainly, as you look at the feedback that's coming from stakeholders in response to the coverage decision, patient advocates such as the Alzheimer's Association are saying there should be no restrictions. And then conversely, some analysts are wary of, of the cost pressures on Medicare and on Part B premium stemming from the coverage. So certainly it's a complicated situation. And if CMS landed in the middle, then maybe that's a sign that they arrived at a, a good decision. You've called attention to a couple of key things for hospitals to note. Maybe the biggest one is that certain people may be at risk if they take Lakembi and screening for that risk is not covered by Medicare. Could you describe that scenario? Sure. And I do have some clarification since we last talked. So with these medications, if patients have the APOE4 genetic mutation, they are at higher risk for a condition called amyloid-related intracranial abnormality, which in technical terms means they have an excess risk of bleeding in the brain 
from the, the drug. So there is a black box warning on the medication that all patients should be screened for the ApoE4 gene prior to administration of the medication. The tricky part is when you look in Medicare coverage guidelines in the LCDs for the molecular genetic test, there is actually no clear guidance in writing about whether this is covered or not. They do describe that ApoE4, when used for other reasons, is a non-covered service. So right now, it's, it's a little bit unclear. I have corresponded with the MOLDX team at CMS, which is contracted through Palmetto. They state in an email that it is covered for ApoE4 testing. But again, until I see that in one of their policy statements, an LCD or a billing and coding guideline with actual codes to use, I think hospitals would need to check with your MAC and make sure that that test is going to be covered. I don't know the cost, but certainly it's going to run at least several hundred dollars. And again, that's an expense that if the patient's going to be responsible for it, you certainly would want to inform them prior to the test that there may be financial obligation. And just to clarify, a black box warning, is that the most serious type of warning from the FDA? Yes. So very you know, significant clinical guidance to keep in mind there. Yes, yes. In the studies, there, there were patients who did die from this intracranial bleeding. And like any drugs, a patient going into it should know the potential risks. This screening for patients should be mandatory as part of a course of treatment involving Lakembi, would you say so? Um, that's a really nuanced question. Okay. I think if, if it is a covered test, absolutely, there should be no reason. If it's a non-covered test and it's expensive, I think that the physician and patient should have a shared decision-making visit where they discuss the risks of not getting this test and proceeding with the therapy. The patient may choose to accept the risk. And if that's well-documented, I think that there may be a you know logic to proceeding with the treatment without it. But certainly, I would strongly, strongly recommend the test be done. All right. Thank you for the clarification on that. And then there's, we thought there was another potential stumbling block just in terms of determining whether a patient is clinically eligible for Lakembi. But there's been some breaking news just in the last couple of days before we recorded the session. And it seems like CMS may be coming around to mitigating this issue, at least to a degree. What's the latest as you understand it? So this relates to coverage for PET scans. PET scan is the brain scan that's used to determine whether the patient has amyloid. And as it stands now, there is coverage for one PET scan in a lifetime for patients with dementia. They're asking for comment on whether they should expand that coverage to more more than one scan, which would would be important in, in the right clinical setting. I will mention, though, this is another chance to remind hospitals that If you have physicians starting to order PET scans for dementia, that you very carefully look at the national coverage determination. It is NCD 220.6.13. And it has quite a long list of requirements that must be fulfilled in order for Medicare to cover that PET scan for the patient with dementia. So there has to be significant documentation available to the hospital or the imaging center prior to that scan being done, where there's going to be a high risk of denial. The other thing I'll mention about the PET scans is, remember, our target here is to slow down the progression of dementia. 
And right now, we don't have clear data that says that if your scan gets better, that your dementia is going to get better or is going to go slower. So I think CMS is going to have to be very careful in deciding how many of these scans and how often they'll cover them and how they're going to be used. But I do like, again, that they're going to the physicians, they're going to the community, the experts, the advocacy organizations to come up with the right answer to these questions. All right. We can share a link to the coverage decision that was just issued uh, the week of July 17th in the notes for this episode. Dr. Hirsch, thank you for providing insight on these issues as we move into this new era of, of Alzheimer's disease treatments. My pleasure to keep the community informed. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Reporting and writing today are by Nick Hutt and Sean Stack. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is the Director of Content. Our President and CEO is Ann Jordan. Have you gone to see the um, Barbie movie yet?